Jerry Weaver, alcoholic. Friday, July 2nd, 1989. Home group is a group called There's a Solution. Yep, Simple Actions is a good name, but it's not as good as There's a Solution. So, uh, that's a good name, but I think There's a Solution. They, they wrote a chapter about us in the big book. I don't know if you've ever, if you've ever read that or seen that anywhere, but it's, it's in the book in there. Uh, but good to be here this morning. Good to, uh, to, to be sober and to be in my right mind and to be amongst friends. If um, I'm assuming if you're here this morning, it's probably because you want to be. Maybe not because your sponsor told you to or that uh, you don't have much of a life. Oh, um, so what? That was, I no, I said that. I think that that's why some people come. <laughs> or this, this, the, the, but most, most folks that show up for something like this, it's because they really are interested in, in their own recovery. And they, they're interested in you know, getting a stronger hold on, on their alcoholism and, and interested in, uh, in, in going a little, you know, beyond just uh, going to meetings. So I, I appreciate people that show up for, for stuff like this. I know that uh, it's done nothing but help me to, to be involved in, in all aspects of Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, I'm always, uh, I'm always, I, I'm a, I read a lot of AA history. I talk to a lot of people and I, I, I love, uh, the, the early stories of our, uh, of our uh, kind of pioneers of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I'm always uh, kind of uh, amazed at how simple the program was. I, I still think it can be that simple. Uh, but when you read stories, in, uh, even in the big book and read other stories about people when they got sober, uh, a, a really good example in the book is Alcoholics Number 3. Alcoholic Number 3, right? He... He basically took an inventory sitting in the hospital, and he basically shared that with kind of with himself and with Bill and, and Bob when they came and visited him on that third day or fourth day, whatever that was, and shared his deficiencies with them. And he immediately got out of the hospital and started making amends, and it worked for him. The guy stayed sober all of his life. Bill Wilson, same thing, right? He he uh, he was in the hospital and kind of gave his life to God in the hospital and shared his deficiencies and his shortcomings or his sins, as he called them, I think, in the book with Ebby when he came back. Guy stayed sober the rest of his life. Uh, there's a good story in there about he sold himself short in the big book. Guy spent three or four hours with Dr. Bob in his office on Dr. Bob's day off, and they went through the, the six-step program as it was at that time. And in about three or four hours, he did an inventory and shared uh, his, his defects and his, his shortcomings with Dr. Bob and went on and started a meeting in Chicago. And if you try to do stuff like that today, people want to laugh at you or tell you that you can't do that. And I'd submit to you that it's, 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 it's that simple. Now, I'm a guy that uh, there was a period of time, it's been a while, that I got real mechanical with four-step. I wasn't originally sponsored that way and I could give you some really nice diagrams and pick apart words and and uh, all that I guess has its place um, but we won't do that for you this morning I, I don't I'm, uh, that's really not what it's about and 
a lot of the guys that I sponsor nowadays, they, they come in and they think that the, the steps are like some checklist. Did that one, did that one, did that one, did that one, and they're going to run off to the next one and did that one. And uh, it's more about just kind of checking it off and saying that I did it. And really, the you know for me, the fourth through the ninth step, it's about having an experience. And it's about truly trying to, to get at the root of my selfishness and my self-centeredness. And it's getting at the root of what I did to cause all the problems in my life. And if I don't, if I don't look at it as a spiritual exercise, sometimes I can miss the, the point of it. Now I'm a guy, before I got sober, I didn't, I don't, I don't recall ever taking my inventory. I, I recall taking a lot of other people's inventory. And I mean, I was a, as I, I was a guy that just blamed everything on other people. I mean, it was always somebody else's fault. From my earliest memory, it was somebody else's fault. You know, it was my dad's fault for moving me around a lot and fooling around on my mom. If that didn't happen, then, you know, I wouldn't be the way that I was. And, you know, my mom loved my brother more than she loved me. And, you know, it was, that was obvious to everybody. And it just traumatized me as a kid. You know, none of that stuff was, I mean, none of that stuff was, was really true. And um, everything that, that, that happened, I mean, every time I got in trouble with the law, every time I got in trouble with authority, Every time I got kicked out of something, I could always point back to it being somebody else's fault. And, you know, what, I had nothing to do with it. And, the, and I kind of brought that into, into AA. And the, the story in the, in the big book, the actor that acts like the director, right? It's right before the third step in the book. That, boy, that thing nails me. Now, I didn't, when I was sober a couple of weeks and I read that, I didn't fully understand it. It wasn't until after I did an inventory and a fifth step that I, I kind of understood what that meant. And then the longer I stayed sober, boy, I really started to come to, to understand what it meant. But, you know, that was my life. I mean, I was a guy that, that w- would be real kind and real polite to you, but I always had a hidden motive. I, was gonna, I wanted something on the back end of it. And that was just kind of how I operated. If you'd asked me, I'd have told you, yeah, I'm a pretty nice guy, pretty honest guy. None of that was true. Because um, I was always out to get something. I always, there was always a selfish, selfish end to it. And, and then when you didn't act like I wanted you to or you didn't give me what I wanted, then I would revert to getting mad, getting, getting angry, getting indignant, and you know, cussing at you or fighting you or, or you know, disregarding you. And that was just a vicious cycle. I mean, that was, you know, that was my life was, was just one, you know, episode after another like that. And the, the, the more that I fought, the worse things got. And I didn't understand that. And I was another guy that didn't, I mean, I thought that you were supposed to, like, judge people and that you were supposed to keep score. I mean, that was just kind of how it was. I didn't know that. As a matter of fact, when it was first presented to me in the third step that, hey, you know what, you can give up managing other people's lives and you can just let people be who they were, I, I actually was relieved, man. I was like, I want to sign up for that because, I mean, I, that way I didn't have to keep score in my head. And, I mean, I, I, mean, I knew exactly what you had done and, and, you know, what I was going to do to you. I knew exactly what you had done. And I just, I mean, it was just as, as exhausting trying to keep up with all that stuff. Um, and I didn't know that you could actually just let people be who they were and that you could just accept some things and you didn't have to constantly judge and, and constantly keep score. And, you know, I'm a guy that, that 
did I did my first fourth step. I guess I was about three weeks sober, four weeks sober, and was it? You know, it's very similar to a, to this comes kind of the stories in the book. I mean, I was told, hey, if you if you got a problem and you want to recover, this is how we do it, and that that you need to hurry up and get on with the spiritual program of action if you're going to make it. And you know, it was explained to me that that idea, that fundamental idea of God, was inside of me, and that that I covered that up through living the way that I live through, you know, constantly uh, being full of fear and being full of resentment, full of anger. But I covered it up by all the, the stuff that I put into my body. And I covered it up by being uh, overly selfishness and, and selfish and self-centered and just this over-concentration on myself. And that the purpose of the, you know, four through nine uh, was to try to get all that stuff out of me and to uncover that stuff so that that spirit that's, that was inside of that power that's inside could come to life. And that, that's what that spiritual awakening was. And I don't know if I fully understood all that at the time, but you know, that, that I, I was kind of taught that the purpose of that, that fourth step is to disclose those things inside me that block me off, block me off from God, block me off from people. And because, you know, when I got here, just like you know, most everybody, I mean, I was just at odds with the world. I was at odds with people. And I couldn't have a, a meaningful or a, or a, help, a healthy relationship with anybody because of the things that were inside of me. And, um, you know, and I was also told, we, we talked about it last night, that you know, the best way to, to do the first three steps is the, the way you turn your willing life over to God is really steps four through nine. And that those are actions against, against my will. Those are actions against what I think, feel, and believe. Because I don't want to look at myself, right? There's nothing wrong with me. It's you. And, you know, I had, the first time I wrote the first, the first four step that I wrote, I mean, it, it, was, um, it was not exactly the format in the book. I, I, can you believe it? I still stayed sober. Um, man, I can't believe that. I'm, I'm here. Um, it was close, though. And... <laughs> Uh, but what happened to me when I started writing that stuff down? I mean, I was just this, you know, a huge victim and woe is me. And when I started writing down those resentments I had and started asking myself some of those questions about where was I selfish and where was I dishonest and where was I at fault, where was I to blame, I had a I mean, I had just writing it. For me, I had somewhat of a spiritual experience in that it was the first time in my life that I actually saw that most of the people that I had blamed my life on had done nothing but help, try to help me. And I just continued to blame them. I continued to, to look at what they were doing and what they were not doing and, instead of what they actually did to help me. And, you know, for the very first time in my life, I realized that most of the resentments that I had at people were made up in my mind. I mean, it was just stuff that I just made up and stuff. Most of it wasn't based on any fact or any, any real series of, uh, of events. It was, just, it was just stuff that I conjured up in my mind. And one of the things that was really, really helpful for me was the, in the, 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 there's a prayer in the book. And there's a, kind of a little exercise there that says that, that we, we try to realize that the people who, who wronged us were, were perhaps spiritually sick. And... You know, that was one of the things that, for me, it was, it was somewhat profound in that I started to realize that, you know what, all those people, you know, they, they were doing the best that they could. 
And that kind of, you know, we say that a lot in AA, and sometimes we mean it or we don't mean it, but it, it actually had an impact on me. Then I started to realize that, my God, I, you know, I did all kinds of things wrong, and I made all kinds of mistakes, and people, people let me off the hook. People forgave me. People still tried to help me, and yet I don't want to pass that same, that, that same level of love and tolerance on, on to other people. And so it really, really helped me to, to realize that, you know, all those things I blamed my dad on, he was just doing the best he could do. You know, and, uh, you know, my God, I started thinking about, you know, neither one of my parents made it past the ninth grade. And both of them grew up, grew up in really, really rough, tough conditions. I mean, stuff that I couldn't even imagine having to do. And they were basically, you know, kids having kids, you know. And mom started having babies when she was 15. And... I started to realize that, man, they were doing the best they could do. That here I am, not a whole lot wrong with me, really, and that they had actually done a pretty good job of trying to take care of me. But it was their fault, you know, that I was where I was at. And I st- that stuff started to shift a little bit, and I started to realize that, that I'm the one that made a lot of the decisions that put me where I was at. And through that prayer in there, I started to realize that, I got to focus on myself. I got to focus on, on my demonstration. I got to focus on what did I do and take the, take the focus off of them. And that prayer in the book is really, it's actually for us. You hear a lot of people talking about, well, I'm going to pray for this person to get all these things. or That's, that's not what that prayer in the, in the fourth step says. It's asking God to show me how to practice tolerance and patience and pity. It's asking God to save me from being angry. And I do that so that I can disregard what I think people have done to me and look at what I did. And for me, that prayer was very, very powerful in letting people off the hook and, and really practicing some forgiveness for others and, and focusing on, on, on what I did. And, you know, I was a... I was a guy that didn't have, when I got here, if you'd asked me if I was afraid of anything, no, I'm not afraid of nothing. And, uh, and would believe that. And, you know, my whole life was riddled with fear. I mean, you know, when I got honest about it, my earliest memory was fear. And I don't remember ever waking up any morning without being consumed with fear and consumed about what's going to happen today and who's going who's gonna to find out and who's coming to get me and they're out there and I don't know who they are but I know that they're coming and matter of fact I was sober about 18 years before I realized that the boogeyman actually doesn't exist right? I was, uh, it was a long, long time um, but when I started writing out fears you know a lot of them started losing their power over me and it was just like the resentments that I had at people when I started writing that stuff out I, it started losing its power. I mean, that, that's one of the importance for me of writing stuff down. I mean, it's one thing to, to talk about it to somebody, but when I start writing it down, typically I, I, I'm a, a little more truthful and honest when I write. And when I start writing stuff, for me, I, it, it just starts losing its power. And uh, a lot of stuff even starts, in some cases, is almost comical or very kind of like you look at it and you're like, man, I'm really immature. <laughs> right when you, when you start writing some of that stuff down, you're like, and especially when you write it and then you leave it for a while and you come back and you read it, and you're like, whoa, really? And then you want to, right? You want to shred it real quick or burn it so nobody can see it. I'm not sharing this with anybody, um, but I, 
But I realized that my life was just riddled with fear and that every decision I made was based in fear. I got married the first time at a young age because I was afraid to tell the girl that I didn't want to get married. <laughs> I mean, absolutely the truth. All right? I went into the Air Force mostly to avoid going to jail, but I didn't want to go into the Air Force, and I did because I was afraid to, to make a different decision. I was afraid to tell somebody, hey, I'd rather do this. And... Um, you know, everything, I mean, every decision I made was based in what I thought somebody was going to think or what I thought somebody was going to, you know, do. And a lot of the decisions that I didn't make was because of fear and, and worried about failing and worried about, man, what's going to happen if I, if I don't measure up? What, what are they going to think? And, you know, all that stuff was, was none of it was real. It was just stuff that I made up in my mind. And I, when I wrote that stuff down and um, you know, it started to lose its power, and the, the the thing that happened to me, though, when I wrote all that out the very first time was, it was just, it, it really hit me that I was really not a victim anymore, and that, again, that most people that, that I had come into contact with, I had dirtied them somehow through my actions or through my words. And that most of those folks never deserved it and that most of them had really done, done nothing but, but try to help me. And when I shared that with somebody, at, I don't know, I was four or five weeks sober when, when I did that first fifth step. Excuse me. It, uh, I had, a very, I had a similar experience to the book. I mean, I didn't have a blinding light experience or a burning bush experience. But when I got done with that fifth step and shared that with a guy and got all that, all that stuff out, it was, it was really the first time in my life. And I, I don't want to imply that I was like done with the program, but when, it, when I finished that fifth step, it was like the first thing in my life that I ever actually completed that I ever actually sat down and said I'm gonna do this and finish it and I actually completed it. And I was, I was like a lot of alcoholics, I was a good starter on stuff, but I never finished anything. Man, nothing. I'd start all kinds of stuff. Man, I'd have all these good intentions and I'd go into it all hot and heavy and, and pumped up and I'd fizzle out quick. And I mean, I never, I was inconsistent. I, I, I never showed up for anything. <clears throat> and. There was this sense of accomplishment, but more importantly for me, I felt like for the first time that maybe this will work. I felt like a, I felt like a, a, a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. I felt like I was, and I hate to, not words that we normally use in AA, but I was a, a full-fledged member of the program, and that that you know that maybe that what we have here could could help and and, and basically save my life. And I left there knowing that I had done something good. And I left there knowing that I was an immature kid that never took responsibility for anything. And that, that my life, and, and literally this was about five weeks sober, I mean, I, I had this realization that my life was, and what happened from that point on was actually up to me. That I had to quit relying on my parents to bail me out. I had to quit lying, relying on my father-in-law to, to help me out with things. I had to quit relying on all these people and needed to take responsibility for my own actions. I needed to take accountability for my life. And 
that was a it, for me it was a profound thing because I was a guy that man everything it was always somebody else's responsibility. Yeah, ain't got money to pay the bills. Well, one of you guys should pay this bill for me, right? Cars broke down. Well, Dad, you should come over here and fix this car. I mean, what's your problem? You know, and um, you know, I got all these, you know, trouble at the courthouse. Well, you guys should pay for the attorney to help me out here. I mean, come on, what's what's the deal? And I, I realized that all that stuff was that it had to stop. And my, all I did was use people, and all I did was expect people to do stuff for me. Uh, I love. I was a. a I love self-pity, and I love making people feel sorry for me, and I love making things worse than what they are, and I love exaggerating the, the, the circumstances of my life, so that, so you know, grandma or mommy or daddy or somebody will come in and, and say, oh, we're, we feel so sorry for you, son, we're going to help you out, and I mean, I was a master at that, and you know, I realized that all that stuff, you know, that, that, it, that it, it was wrong and that it needed to stop. And, you know, I went on from there and, and, and did six and seven and, and then went on into the amends that we'll talk about in a little while. But, and I've done other four steps since then, or I've done other inventories, um, but none of them as good as that first one. And it was just a, it, I mean, it was, you know, looking back on it, it wasn't the Sermon on the Mount or anything spectacular. It was just a, you know, I was just, I had a, a desire to get honest. I had a desire to change. And I did the best that I could do, and it was sufficient. Um, and, you know, as I stayed sober, and as, you know, I continued to grow up and my life started to change, I started really to understand the, what it talks about in the book about, uh, you know, identifying things inside me that block me off. I didn't fully understand that when I was, when I was nearly sober. Um, but I, I, you know, I, I understand it today that, that that it's important for me to to identify things inside of me that that block me off from God, that block me off from, from other people, that block me off from being successful in all areas of my life. And you know, that's really what that is. And now I'm not a guy that 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 uh, I. I, I been a part of some of that stuff, but nowadays we can get real caught up in inventory and get get almost paralyzed. And we want to constantly inventory stuff and constantly inventory this and what's wrong with me and I, I stumped my big toe. What am I doing wrong? And, you know, the, I was telling John, you know, I mean, people just get all dramatic over the craziest things. You know, and uh, I fell off a ladder. What's you know, what's going on? What am I doing wrong? What do I got to do to stop this? And, I call it analysis paralysis, that we can get so caught up in inventory and looking and looking and looking that we miss the point of really what we're supposed to be doing is just living life and trying to grow as we do that. And certainly that, you know, we're going to make mistakes or we're going to make bad decisions, but um, we just got to get over that and, and learn from them and move on. And if I constantly stay caught up in inventory and analysis of myself, then it's hard to live life. It's hard to be free. And that's, you know, that's what happened to me when I, when I did that first honest fourth and fifth step was I, I started to become free. It was the first real tangible evidence of walking away from that, that crazy busted life and moving on to, to freedom and moving on to something, something better. 
because I was, you know, I didn't realize at the time, but I was a slave to all those things that I thought people did to me. And it's like a boat anchor. It's like a chain that just, you know, that, that, that ties me and binds me from, prevents me from moving forward. And if I don't, if I don't acknowledge it and deal with it and, and, and cut it, then I just stay stuck. Um, so that's what happened to me in that, that first, fourth, and fifth step was I started the, the process of becoming free of the past and the process of, of realizing that I wasn't a victim and that I needed to take responsibility for my actions. You know, it, it hit me pretty hard. So thank you. Good morning, everybody. Rich Bruckner, alcoholic. I could just sit there and listen to him all day. I like that. Um, <clears throat> I think what we're talking about today, at, at least for me, it is the new way of life. This sober living um, comes through everything that we're going to talk about today. Um, the only bad inventory you know is the one not taken um i I, these are all i just look at them as like life skills or spiritual tools i mean this is the new way of living that you all taught me that i everything i'm going to talk about today is virtually new vocabulary to me um from alcoholics anonymous i mean i I, the self-examination i have never said those words before aa like i was never sitting in the bar or anywhere else going you know well let's look at my part in it i mean just that phrase you know we pick up these phrases in aa like we've been using them our whole lives and, and it's a good thing that they've become such a functioning part of our vocabulary but it's because i've developed a manner of living Right, which enables me to become somebody different. And let's face it, that uh, you know we don't have to do that. The only requirement for membership—I'm not, you know, I'm not an idiot. I've read the traditions. Is a desire to stop drinking. But I also know that let's face it, we've got all kinds of members. I mean, that's not a real stringent membership requirement. I belong to some other organizations, a lot of them that have a heck of a lot higher bar, so to speak, than AA. Right. Uh, you say you're a member, you're a member. Uh, and because of that, we've got all kinds of members. We've got pot smoking members. We've got members that get 24-hour chips every couple weeks. We've got pill-taking members, dope-smoking members, rotating members, lifetime sober members, helpful members, members that never do anything. And we got it all, right? And, uh, and they're all equal members of Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, but the book does talk about a different set of requirements for sober membership. Um, And the book says, who cares, right? Who cares for this process of of inventory, self-examination, self-searching, it calls it. Who cares for self-searching, the leveling of pride? Not me. I mean, that's that's what we're talking about today. And it tells me right off the bat that I'm not going to be much interested in it. Who cares for the self-searching, leveling of our pride, confession of our shortcomings, that the process requires for its successful consummation. And Jim looked at me and said, you've got a lot of those 24-hour chips. Are you interested in becoming a successful sober member of Alcoholics Anonymous? And I said, yes, I am. And that is a whole different group of standards than the traditions. 
And I became interested in becoming one of these guys that are a long-term sober member of Alcoholics Anonymous. And that uh, seems to be, according to the book, what we're talking about today. Um, also, um, the mechanics of it for me, this inventory started for me in that federal penitentiary. Uh, how it started for me, I didn't know about this writing. I didn't know about the outline. I didn't know about columns. I didn't know about any of that. But what happened for me... Um, and I say that specifically because it happened for me, uh, was I'm sitting in that penitentiary and God surrounded me with enough of me during that nine months of sitting in that federal penitentiary that I was able to see me for the first time. I was able to start this self-examination without even knowing what I was doing or what it was called uh, by the way that God set it up. And the way that it happened for me is... When he surrounded me with guys like me, we'd be out in the yard for the day. And there's a couple thousand men in that penitentiary. It's, um, I, I believe it holds 1,800 men. Um, 1,799 of those men were innocent. And I was the only one in there that was guilty. And that was a huge revelation to somebody like me. And what happened was all day in the yard, these guys would tell stories like I've told my whole life. They'd say things like, the reason that I'm in here is because of my mechanic. And if my mechanic had fixed that taillight on my car, the cop would have never pulled me over. And if the cop would never have pulled me over, he wouldn't have smelled the alcohol on my breath. And if he hadn't smelled the alcohol on my breath, he'd have never asked me to step out of the car, search the trunk, and find the dope. So you can see that the reason I'm in here serving this 20 years is because of my mechanic. And when I get out of here, if I find him, we're going to get this straightened out. And if I'd have hooked that guy up to a lie detector, he'd have absolutely passed it. He believed he was in there because of his mechanic. And I'm in here, and the guy said, I'm in here because of my wife. And if she hadn't done what she did, you know, I wouldn't have had to get in that fight in the kitchen and grab the knife and send it, you know. And he absolutely, if I'd have hooked him up, he, he believed that. He's in there because of his wife. And what happened in being in the, the, the midst of that, I, I just had this inward thing happening. The more I heard from them these stories that were like stories that I told, I was able to see me for the first time. And that I was where I was because of who I was. And I was who I was because of how I live. And I'll repeat that because that's a huge deal for a knucklehead of my variety. I was where I was because of who I was. I was who I was because of how I live. And I realized for the first time in my life in that penitentiary that my tombstone's not going to say, here lies Rich Bruckner, he meant well. Because I always meant well. It just didn't, my actions didn't indicate that. The outcomes never looked that way but I did there was never a night in my life where on a Friday night I'm taking that you know pre-game shower you guys know Friday nights you're off work a little money came in maybe payday and I'm in the shower you got the pre-game beer in the shower it's coming down I me mean, nothing's better cold beer hot shower getting out of that shower put on a nice shirt spray on a little girl sauce you know big big plans for the evening and uh you know, you say, hey, Rich, what are you up to tonight? Hey, tonight's the night that I'm going to shame my little sister to the point where she doesn't speak to me for six and a half years. What are you up to tonight? I never left the house with that, that goal. Hey, what are you up to tonight? Well, tonight's the night that I'm going to embarrass my mother to really put the icing on the cake to where mom can't look at me without her eyes dropping to the ground. Her only son that she can't look me in my face for about a decade. You got any plans tonight? What do you hope to accomplish? You know, I never left the house with those, but that's what happened. You know, that's what I'm bringing to the table in Alcoholics Anonymous. And that is a huge deal for somebody like me um, to actually 
realize, you know, in a penitentiary to start to accept uh, accountability for my actions and, and in AA language to see my part in it, that I'm where I was because of what I do, you know, how I live life. Um, and that's, that's no small deal. And that's a God deal. That's a God inventory. You know, like I hadn't even, I wasn't even familiar with, with this stuff. So if it came down to mechanics, uh, I too would be drunk uh, because I didn't know about how to, you know, do a perfect inventory or anything like that. But I believe uh, that that's where the process of um, self-examination and this whole concept of looking at myself and, and truly inside understanding who and what I am and why my life keeps turning out like it does over and over was starting to sink in. Uh, when I got to that place in the program and, I, and I'd made that decision that I'm just going to do whatever, basically, I'm going to just do what you tell me to do because that was the only part of a. I'd never approached AA like that. I'm just going to do what you tell me to do. Um, he said that we write down these resentments and I, I, I have this other thing about me that um, one of my biggest fears is that you'll know that I don't know something, right? And it's it's... I like that show on TV that's got like the man code and that's like the worst thing for a man. You know, you can't know that I don't know. I have to seem like I know everything or at least invent something. And, and I go through life like that and I, and I say things like, um, I have a story that I kind of believe, but not really. I get to AA and, and by this point, things are starting to happen by the time I get to, to step four. And I, and I too, uh, did it with somewhat urgency. I think I was I I about 40 some days sober. I'd come out of the hospital after that, not working out. And I, you know, got my sponsor, made the decision to go ahead through with the process. Uh, so I know I wasn't more than, you know, two, three months sober the first time I, I did this. And I view the first time through these steps, um, whether they're mechanical in nature, or it, it just doesn't even matter how you do them that first time. To me, it was like triage. Uh, it was just to, to stop the bleeding enough that I didn't, you know, die immediately. And that's the only set of urgency for somebody like me. I know that I can only stay sober for so long without getting some of that stuff out. And there's short fuse guys and gals and longer fuse guys and gals. I can make it roughly a couple of weeks without the, the, the process. Um, so... And he would point that out. You know, the only time frame on a, on a fourth step, you just have to do it before you die. But other than that, take your time, you know. And, um, and that first time through, that's what I needed to do was to get enough of that out and get as honest as I could, the best I could, um, to not have to, you know, kill myself with another drink uh, or pills or whatever else I was going to do to take myself out sober in that awful state of, you know, I'm not drinking and not changing. And that's like the most dangerous place to be in, in Alcoholics Anonymous, I think, is that, that period of time. And um, from all of that education stuff around alcoholism, I, I do know the figure is that 92% of alcoholics that commit suicide, we do it sober. It's we don't, when we're drunk, we're all right. We're not thinking about the, the shame and the remorse and, and the, the guilt and the God that just, I've just screwed this thing up so bad. Uh, that happens in those periods of, you know, sobriety, <laughs> right? And that's, that's, I got, I, I got to do something about it. And this inventory lets me do that. And, and, you know, he said, write down resentments. And I told you, I can't 
tell you that I don't know what something means. So I, I say, uh, well, I don't have any of those. And, uh, and he said, okay, that's fine. Um, I, I can see that. So just instead, just go home, write down who you hate and why you hate them. And I said, oh, you should have said so. That's easy. And, uh, you know, and I start firing that out. And, um, you know, my buddy and I last night got to start that right here. A uh, new friend of mine had, you know, just getting started on the inventory. And I just write down who you hate and, and, and why you hate them. And it turns out we're really good at that. I mean, that's what we do during smoke breaks, right? Outside the meeting, after the meeting, in the clubhouse, at dinner. I mean, that's what, no doubt, you're going, you know, guy Jerry's got a beautiful full head of hair, you know, almost 50. You know, who the hell does he think he is? Comes here from North Carolina to tell us about AA in Virginia. You know, that's a, and who brought bald guy from Ocean City. I mean, write it down. Bald guy from Ocean City, you know, why thinks he's sober, says that there's another set of requirements for sober membership. I didn't like the way that sounded. Write it down. That's it. I mean, what we do right out front, that's it. It is no deeper um, than that. I'm a big believer on uh, the flip side of that. I've gotten to hear a lot of fifth steps and becoming a, I think that the fourth step inventory is as good as the listener. And I like to do inventory with just about anybody to listen. If I respect you and your, and your sobriety, I want to do some inventory with you at some point. Uh, because each person I've had the, the privilege of doing that with, that's a good fifth step partner, pull something out of me that I didn't know. You know, because they're listening. I, I've learned to listen for what's not being said, right? You know, hey, Jerry, I noticed we've gone through, uh, you know, 15 names here. You're, what, what about your mother? You've never talked about your mother. She's not on any list. We're on year 25. I've heard four inventories. Um, did you, everybody I know has a mother. Oh, well, well, I'm not, you know, I'm not mad at her. I've never known her since birth. Oh, really? What, 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 oh, she just split when I was born. Okay, mom, split when I was born. Sounds like we're getting to something, right? And then, but before you know it, I'm crying, right? I'm, oh, she left, she left me, right? <laughs> like there's this thing. So uh, the, 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 the fifth step listener, I think, is equally as important. And we don't talk about that, that a lot, you know, listening for what's not being said. And you all have been so good at doing that for me uh, because... I live in this self, self-delusion. I say things, I have this little job by this point and things are starting to change in my life, in my sobriety. I'm sweeping the floor in a picture frame shop is my first sober job and I'm making $6.25 an hour and a little's becoming a lot in Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm starting to go to meetings that I didn't like to go to, the ones that have this book up front and the ones that are talking about steps. And you know, the one, I used to come into a meeting and if I'd see this, I'd leave. Because I knew what you guys were going to talk about. And I was like, oh, man, I went to the wrong meeting. And I'd go find a group that was talking about their day and how do you feel. And, you know, maybe my favorite topic, like relationships, because we're all so good at them. And the group sits around and, you know, does anybody have a topic? And, you know, Bob is like, you know, she left me again. And it's been Bob's topic for like the last five years. And, uh, you know, then we go around the room and everybody shares their sage wisdom on relationships and you know, he calls on his buddy Frank, who knows a lot, because Frank's been married and divorced six times. You know, he's got he's got a lot to offer us. And uh, you know, and I leave a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous knowing no more about recovery from this fatal disease than the second that I walked in. But maybe I'm a better dater or something. And uh, 
But now things are starting to kind of inwardly change, right? At this at this point in my sobriety, and and I'm I'm strangely drawn to some people I didn't used to like in AA or becoming likable. I don't know if anybody's had that experience, and and some of the people I used to think were just great, I'm starting to keep a little distance, you know. To, you know, maybe I don't need to go to the pool hall and uh, smoke weed out back anymore. You know, like the the. Things are just starting to change. My picture of sobriety and Alcoholics Anonymous, and um, and I would tell story. You know, that guy would give me my my paycheck at that little picture frame shop, and it was like two hundred and some bucks a week, man. And a little became a lot. That's the other thing. Anybody notice that? A little comes a lot in Alcoholics Anonymous. When we focus on the spiritual, the material always takes care of itself. It just happens that way. And when I do it the other way around, which is how I'd always approach life, was like if I could just get enough money in the bank. I mean, there's people in this room that I promise have this plan. When I get X amount of money in the savings account, then I'm going to get really spiritual. I mean, I'm going to have time to go to retreats every weekend. I'm going to go to these AA functions. I'm going to go to AA conferences. I'm going to take a full hour and a half in the morning for prayer and meditation. I'm going to have all kinds of time once I get X amount of, right? And, uh, it's like the secret plan in AA that we don't talk about. I'm going to get spiritual when dot, 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 right? And uh, so I would say things. He'd give me my paycheck and I'd have to go to those. I hope I don't offend. I'll probably offend somebody. I'd, I'd go to those. I call them the loser check cashing places because that's where I had to go. I don't have, I'm a guy. I don't have a bank account. Um, and, and he would say, you know, they take like 5% of your paycheck for not having a bank account. It's like a loser penalty. Like, you're such a loser, Rich, you can't have a bank account, so we're going to take part of your paycheck just to cash it because you suck that bad. And, uh, and, and that's, what I, that's what I got going on inside of me, and I can't tell you that. So this guy I'm working for, Dan, would say, how come you don't go to, why don't you just put that in the bank, deposit it, do direct deposit, cash it at the bank? It's free. And I say, no, no, no. I'm a cash guy. Banks are corporate America. I don't do banks. I don't do corporations. Those are institutions. They're big. You know, and if you listen to me long enough, I can almost convince you that there's some sense in this nonsense, right? And and the truth of it is, is I'm on this thing called check systems where I'm so bad with money and balancing a check account and bounced so many checks and, you know, screwed over so many banks that I'm not allowed to have a checking account. I fill out the paper, they run it through check systems, everything's connected today, and it goes wah, 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 and the bank is like, sir, please leave, right? And so, but who can come to AA and just spill that out, right? Oh, I'm not allowed, so I gotta go to this other place. And, um, and I got a lot of things like that, that I operate, the way that I operate in life, I've got my story for them. Um, about being a cash guy. And I've developed a lot of these stories that we're going to unravel through this inventory process. So I'm writing down, uh, you know, who I hate and why I hate them. And that sure was easy. And then uh, we talked about it. I looked at it. He said, uh, we, we put it aside and came back to it. And just in that little bit of my experience is that the magic of Alcoholics Anonymous happens through a pen. And I don't know why all the magic is contained in a pen, um, but it is. And this wasn't foreign to me, this idea of it's important to write things down. My father was a uh, in, the, in the Army, and he was structured. He was a drill sergeant and was familiar with the way of doing things. And he went on to be very successful in business. Um, 
he was the president of 7-Up, the soft drink company. And every Saturday from as far back as I can remember, I'm talking like 10 years old, it was on my list of one of the things that I hated my father for. Um, we had family dinner at 6 o'clock. We all had to be at the table, you know, no hats, nothing. You know, you had to be there and family time. And on Saturdays, I'm sorry, on Sundays, we had to present my father with a list of our 10 goals for the week and they had to be written. And my father said that goals don't exist unless they're on paper. Otherwise, they're just things in your head and nothing in your head is real. Uh, they, the, the only example of, of, of a goal being real is if they're listed on paper. And my sister and I had to give this, you know, and I'm talking every week from 10 through middle school through high school. And then on Saturdays, the week later, under those 10 goals, I had to leave some space. And then I had to list on Saturday, we would present my father at dinner with the three things we did that week that brought us closer to or further from meeting each of our goals. Um, and I hated him for that, you know. And now that I'm in business and doing, doing some stuff in my life and through Alcoholics and I've read some outside stuff and... You know, there's all these books about seven habits of highly effective people. And it's like, write your goals down. I'm like, man, my dad was on to something, you know. And all of a sudden, it's become a valuable life skill that I hated him for, for like trying to, you know, help me. But uh, <laughs> just thought it was so strict, all this help. But, the, but there's, I don't know what it is. I can't explain it. There's a certain magic when pen meets paper. And that happens time and again for me in Alcoholics Anonymous. And, uh, and they seem to think, think so, too, because there's many points in the book where I could point out, but you all know where they are, where they, they say, you know, we do this in writing. We put this down. We put it on paper. We put it on paper. And then I took it up, uh, and, and I'm sitting there, and, and Roger starts asking me these questions about, you know, well, what, do you, what do you think that affects? You know, does that affect your self-esteem? How did that make you feel? Because number one on my list was, was this girl, Melissa. Um, and Melissa, she, uh, when I was in the hospital dying, she came into that hospital room. My mother was in the corner because they didn't think I was going to make it. Uh, it ended up that I did destroy my pancreas. I have some, like, another story, but some problems. And uh, Melissa had, had a key to my house. She'd been living with me, um, much like many other names on the list. And... She came in to return the key and said, it doesn't look like you're going to be much fun anymore. I'm going with another guy and left. And, um, and I'm thinking like, man, talk about kicking you when, she, when you're down. And, and also when Melissa was, you know, used me, never paid any rent, did all my cocaine, drank everything in the refrigerator, never contributed, just likes me because of the money, you know, blah, blah, blah. And then the, the final line that was, you know, Pretty much if you were a woman, all of my inventory ended with, you know, left me when I was down. You know, got the final blow in. And, uh, and then we're looking at that, you know, what do you think that that affects your self-esteem? I'm like, well, yeah, left me for another guy while I'm dying. I mean, come on. And uh, I'm in a paper gown with my butt out. Yes, self-esteem. And uh, he's like, well, what about, you know, your finances? You know, it seems like you don't like getting sucked in the, in the bank account. I'm like, You're, yeah, man took as much money out of me as she could get. And, uh, well, what about your ambitions? We had to talk about that a little bit because I, I, I didn't even realize I had any, but it turns out that I, that I did. And, you know, personal relationships, including sex. I'm like, well, yeah, I like my friendships. I like guys to see me with the hot chick. 
all my friends important to me and, and my my friend group to uh, you know have a woman with me at that point you know and she's got to look and act a certain way and uh, certainly the sex relations with her and he's like wow he calls that a quadruple banger right that it turns out because she hit on all four areas of self that can possibly be affected. And one of the greatest things that I know about myself today that's just a working part of my life is that if, if something kind of um, is a direct hit, you know what I mean? It poof, gets me. Because, like, if anybody after the meeting last night, Jerry's like, you know, oh, you're a you goofy, bald guy. That's going to... To him what I am. I'm a bald guy. You didn't even capture my attention. You didn't offend me. You didn't upset me. You didn't, you know, that's, the, that's just is what it is. Um, but when one of those, it doesn't affect any of those four areas of self. And now I know it's like when something does kind of, you know what I'm talking about, gets me. I go, why, why am I worked up about this? You know, why, why is it four o'clock in the afternoon and I'm thinking about this thing that happened at nine o'clock this morning? And you guys have just taught me it's it's not a, a working part. I'm like, I think that threatened my job, you know, which means my money, which means our house, which means my daughter, which means, holy cow, am I scared? You know, moving into some fear here. This is what's going on with me because I, I was a guy that went through life that was never any deeper than like, you offend me, I punch you. <laughs> like, it's like a Cro-Magnon, basically, you know what I mean? Like... <laughs> Hurt me, hurt back, Durr. right? And I don't even know why I'm doing it, you know? Said mean thing, flattened tires, <laughs> right? And, and then I'm wondering why there's a warrant for flattening tires, and it's like, well, you said a mean thing to me. And, uh, <laughs> and I also learned through this process that I'm a person, my reaction to being offended in one of these four areas is usually, I, I have a disproportionate responder, if you know what I'm saying. I, I respond tenfold. To what you did to me because it also talks about you know it, it doesn't mean that the world and life things aren't going to happen um you know seemingly to me i have a friend that likes to say nothing happens to me everything happens for me and that's a nice way of looking at the world i'd love to tell you that i could see it that way every day but i i, I don't i'm not there um, and when things happen that the, the, there's times when you know i don't have a part and they're not my fault what am i going to do with them and and we talk about changing a lot in Alcoholics Anonymous and through the inventory process. And when I see my part and get into six and seven and getting free of those things, um, what we don't talk a lot about is the acceptance part of stuff. When things, you know, aren't my fault um, and defects that just are, you know, and learning to live with them. And, and, and accepting them and you know on the uh, the jerk scale I used to be a 10 man when I got to you guys and I'm somewhere around a 7 now you know and, and just knowing that and going you know it's, it's getting better you know I'm not the guy I want to be yet but I'm better than I was um, you know and trying you know we're striving for perfection Bill says in 6 and 7 uh, which I also think is part of our topic of, of inventory because Step six and seven deals with uh, the keys to the kingdom, right? We have that story in the back of the book. And, you know, who here would like to enter the kingdom, right? Like that's a, I don't even know for sure what the kingdom is, but it sounds great. You know, like I'm in. It sounds like a place of like perfect peace and no disturbance and 
you know, whatever the kingdom is, I'm in, right? And, but when I get to the gate, of the, the gate's open to the kingdom, like all of us are welcome all the time. But there's a guy at the gate that says, well, Rich, you can come in. There's only one rule. You can't bring any of your kingdom in here. Well, what's my kingdom? My kingdom is anything I'm in charge of, my way of doing things, my thoughts, my opinions, my political views, my way of doing life, right? Like I've got a way. Ask my wife, you know? God forbid you hang a blue dress shirt in the middle of the white dress shirts, you know, like my, my universe is off. And, um, you know, and she's like, what if, what if, I, what if you, I just wasn't so focused on that and I could have blue and white mixed together and I wasn't disturbed, right? That would be, my, my buddy Sandy used to always say, that's the goal. If there's, a, if there's like the touchdown dance in AA, it's to be the least disturbed person in the room, right? All the time, like that's the goal. I just, no matter what happens, I want to be undisturbed. And this thing that's keeping me out, I mean, today, each of us sitting here has the chance today to live life in God's kingdom. If I'm willing to surrender enough of me to be able to enter. And all of the things, I mean, my six and seven and what comes out of four and five, you know, is an understanding of some of these things that keep me from entering the kingdom. And I'm interested in being in the kingdom with you guys. You know, I, I like peace and calm and happy and smooth day and no resistance. And all of my struggles come from resistance. And getting to some of that is amazing. And those fears, you know, I too was just this scared guy that wanted you to think I'm just this tough guy, you know, trying to pretend I'm a man and um, some, and I don't know where I got that from that it was important that you think I'm a stand-up man. And really, all of these fears, when you boil them down, for me, came to the last part of what they talk about in this fear inventory. Is I'll just give an example of uh, snakes. Afraid of snakes. And he said, well, why are you afraid of snakes? I said, well, it's going, to, it's going to bite me. And he said, well, if you see a snake, just jump back and out, you know, just get out of the way and it won't bite you. Then you don't have to be scared of snakes. And I said, no, no, no. It's that I'm not going to be able to jump out of the way. It's going to like sneak up or I'm going to step on it in the dark or I'm going to be going out to the shed and it's going to hang down from the rafters and, and get me. And he, oh, oh, so what you're telling me, Rich, is that you're scared a snake is going to bite you and there's nothing you can do to stop it. Then uh, I'm scared of losing my job because I won't be able to pay the mortgage. We'll be homeless. Da, da, da. He goes, well, that's it. Don't be scared of that. Just don't lose your job. <laughs> you know, do a good job and, and, and don't lose your job. Then you don't have to worry about that. And I go, no, no, no. You're not listening. <laughs> Let me explain this to you. I'm going to do a good job. I'm going to be on time. I'm going to be the best employee in the place. And for some reason, they're going to fire me anyway. Because there's, even though I do all those things that are within my control, they're going to fire me anyway, and there's nothing I can do about it. And I'm afraid of dying because I don't, you know, know when it's going to happen, and there could be a big heart attack, or da da da. And I'm going to, you know, not, not. Well, just to eat right and just, you know, don't, don't die. 
Okay, no, no, you're not listening. It's that, that, that it, it's going to happen and there's nothing I can do about it. So every fear comes down for me to that second part, the and there's nothing I can do about it. Because we know from the serenity prayer, if there's something I should be doing, I should be doing it. But this concept of things are going to happen that I can't control. I can't take appropriate action to postpone or evade them. They're going to just happen. And then it goes on to say that, the well, we're on a different basis now. You know, this basis of, of trusting and relying uh, on God. And that is a whole different basis uh, for living life is trusting and relying on people say all the time because I do a lot of I get to do a lot of AA stuff in Southern California I love going surfing there I still go into Mexico my home group out there is the La Mesa men's group we do a sober men's surf retreat down into the Baja every time I do it my mother goes nuts she's like those guys that you work for in Mexico aren't the, isn't there still a hit out on you you're gonna die you know, out there. Can you please not go to Southern California and cer certainly Mexico? And, it, and it's like, I find it hard to believe now that through all of the interaction of all the bad stuff with those guys, um, God somehow brought me through that. And now going out there to carry God's message in Alcoholics Anonymous, I'm going to get shot down at the podium. Like that sounds a little crazy now if I'm living on the basis of trusting and relying on God. And then we get to this whole, you know, sex bit and this, this standards, you know, that was the other thing that came out of this process. That's just a working part of life for me is who and what am I? And, uh, and I, you know, he, he would say things like, well, what is your, you know, sex standard, your relationship standard? And, uh, I don't know. I don't, I don't think I have any, you know, like, uh, <laughs> Two eyes is good, ears, you know, <laughs> breathing, I don't know. Um, that, that's what I came to you all with, you know, like just, I would have said like morally vacant, you know. And, <laughs> and he pointed out again by looking at my own writing, which is the, the tricky part of this. It's hard to get out of something you wrote. He's like, well, it seems to me that, you know, you were upset at Melissa because she cheated on you. You were upset at Stephanie because she cheated on you. You were upset at Barbara because she cheated on you. You were upset at Stephanie because she cheated on you. You were upset at, you know, blah, blah, blah. You seem to have an, a, a concept somewhere deep down inside uh, that a man and woman, when they make a commitment to each other, uh, should honor that and not go outside of that commitment. Uh, that seems to be what's upsetting you. Would you agree with that? And I'm like, yeah. And he's like, well, that's called monogamy. Write that down over here. And I, now I got this thing called standard, right? And under that, I would write monogamy. Uh, but coming to you all, I didn't even, I would not have written that, right? And it had, it took that inventory of me looking at that. And, and by the way, with all these women, this was good for me to know. He said, well, how did you meet all of these women that do these horrible things to you? Take your money, do all your cocaine, um, you know, leave when times are tough. Where did, where did you meet Melissa? And I'm like, oh, well, the same place I meet all girls at the bar. And, uh, and, and what do you say? You know, what's, what's your big smooth line, you know, player? You know, what, what's your game? And it turns out I pretty much got one move, you know, with all women, which is like, hey, babe, 
leave him. Don't worry about him. I can see you're upset and he's bothering. You should come with me. I'm a big time cocaine dealer. Let's go back to my place, do some stuff, do some drinking. Come with me. Life's going to be sweet. And then I'm shocked when three to six months later, all you want is money and cocaine, right? And you've wronged me. And I just can't figure out how I could possibly uh, be attracting women of this caliber. And um, so again, it just kind of ruined the whole victim thing for me. Um, they also, you know, have that saying I love, you know, victims don't recover. You just, you got to live in it. Uh, we also like to talk about it with uh, Roger and I, the way it's, it's important. If you want to stay angry about something, you have to keep talking about it. You got to tell your sponsor, you got to go to the meeting and go listen to what Barbara did to me. And then you got to go to the next meeting because the person you told that to didn't properly respond. And you listen to what Barbara did to me. And then you got to go to the next day, you call your sponsor back. You know, I saw Barbara last night. She blah, 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 blah. And then the next day, you know, I'm finding somebody else that I can tell about Barbara. Listen to what Barbara did. And it's very important if you want to stay angry, you got to keep that at the forefront of your mind and your heart. And you got to keep talking about it to anybody that'll listen. Uh, because you know what might happen if you don't do that? You might forget about it and just be happy. And we don't want that to happen, right? If we're in the resentment business, you got to keep that fresh. Uh, so it turns out that some of the best gasoline to put on a resentment is continually talking about it. Uh, so we like to talk about things three times. So, okay, that's the third time we're done with that. Um, through the process of where I am today of, of 12 years of living this way, I, we call um, what Jerry was talking about the four-step plan for resentment because we say, let it go, let it go. You know, like there's some, what are you doing? I'm just going to let it go. And uh, like, what? And it turns out that that's what, you know, four through nine are, is there's an actual process and some work to letting it go for somebody like me. If I had the ability to just wish it away, like my, I, I would do that. Um, so I think a lot of times we do a newcomer a disservice when we come up and go, hey, just let it go without telling them how. In that four step plan, right? I got to see, I got to see where I'm like that person. Um, the Buddhists have a, have a name for that, you know, of, of uh, developing compassion, a loving compassion. What I really have to see is I put my wallet down there while I come up here and she took it. I mean, it's not there anymore. It's probably in her purse. She took my wallet, you know, there's a little bit of dough in there and, uh, and I'm mad. Well, have you ever taken anything from anybody, Rich? Well, yeah. Yeah. I mean, she must have really needed that money to steal a wallet in the middle of an AA meeting. Maybe she's hungry or rent's due or you don't know what's going on. I mean, think how bad off she must be to steal a wallet in an AA meeting. You ever been in a place like that, Rich? Well, well yeah, yeah. And I get to a true place of where I understand. And that is a lot different for a jerk of my type than walking around AA going, well, you know, I can see how she's spiritually sick, right? Which is what it says, right? We, we see where they're saying, oh, well, she's just sick. As if I'm somehow not, and I'm better than that, right? And I've risen to some other plane. Uh, oh, well, you know, she's sick. Some, some are sicker than others. You know? <laughs> you know? 
that is not a true place of empathy when when I see that you know of avoiding retaliation shutting my mouth not running around talking about her you know and seeing how boy man this is something I sure could have done and then I could get from that place of you know resentfulness to true understanding and fellowship with my with brotherhood right with with man and 12 years into practice and trying to live like this I will tell you that you're gonna you know hear that I'm a pretty good amender. When I'm wrong, I'm really, I've gotten really good at being wrong. And I know what to do about it because you all have showed me and taught me and I'm quick to do that. I'm kind of a lousy forgiver because there's only two ways, right, that, that to get undisturbed in, in this process. And if I'm wrong, I quickly admit it. I can see that over from the fourth comma. I quickly admit it and make amends. But what if that's not the case? What if it's the other? I got nothing to do with it. I was actually, you know, wasn't wrong. But I'm disturbed. <laughs> so who cares whether I'm wrong or not? Right? The problem is I'm disturbed. How do I get undisturbed? Forgive. And that's the part we don't talk about, you know, a, a whole ton. You know, we, we focus a lot on accepting what we've done wrong and fixing it. Um, and, I, and I've gotten pretty good at that. And I, I just, in all honesty, tell you that I'm better at that part of it, of getting undisturbed that way. Um, I almost want to be wrong, right? Jeez, because I know what to do with that. Um, but just letting you off the hook, uh, sometimes I, I'm not so quick with that. So I think that's, uh, at this point, all I want to say about inventory other than... Uh, I would tell Jim when we did this and we were going to do this fifth step at six and seven, I said, you know, I went to the meeting. I said, aren't we supposed to go to the beach? Because I, I live right at the beach too. I said, I heard him in the meeting. What we do is we go to the beach. I'm going to read this to you. We're going to set it on fire. And we're going to throw it into the ocean because that's what they said that they, they, they did. I heard several people talk about it at, at the meeting and it just sounded beautiful. I mean, it was symbolic of like the death of the old life, the new life. It was, out it go. I mean, it's like a Viking burial, right? I mean, what do you mean? Come to your house? I'm supposed to. He says, "Set it on fire, throw it into the ocean." Would you please stop going to those BB meetings? And I said, "What is BB, Jim?" And he goes, "I don't know, but it's not AA. That that list is going to be. We need to use that for what's coming next. If you set it on fire and throw it into the ocean, you're dead meat." <laughs> Thanks. <laughs>